The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. With the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, December 8th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Canadian regulators have announced that, by the way, is the entirety of the next issue of the New Republic. It is not a sentence. It is a dependent clause. That is all the resources they could muster. So to catch you up, the New Republic, this excellent 100-year-old entity, is has been gutted. Almost everyone who worked there left because the near-billionaire owner wanted to break shit. Uh, his name is Chris Hughes. Here are a couple examples of Chris Hughes' initiatives. He pushed his staff to embrace mobile technology, including Twitter, but he also told employees not to use the abbreviation TNR to refer to the New Republic. He said that you should always call it the New Republic, which is 14 extra characters on Twitter, so I don't know what the guy was thinking. Well, here next to me is a man with deep history in the New Republic. It's Jacob Weisberg, chairman of the Slate Group, whose first cover story there was written, when, in 1986? 85, 85, 86, when he was uh, taking a year off as a senior from Yale. Jacob, we're going to play one question and one question only. And if if people want to read your quotes about what he did wrong or what they should do now, those quotes are out there. But I want to know, what made the New Republic so great? You know, Mike, I'm nostalgic about it. It was my first job. It was where I made my bones. But I still think that the New Republic was a really unusual place in the American media. And that was partly because of the opportunity you could get as a kid like me walking in, you know, just out of college or, in my case, still in college. And if you had something to say and you reported the story and you did it well, you know, you put that in front of an audience that was small. But in Washington, in the world of politics, it was the audience you cared about it. And boy, was that fun and exciting to be working there under Mike Kinsley, who, you know, I was later involved in starting Slate with when he when he had that idea. And that's something we've tried to carry over to Slate, right? Because if you can, can capture the young talent, you know, you can afford for people to leave and go to the New York Times and go to the New Yorker someday, as long as you're the place that finds the talent and develops talent. And the other thing of the New Republic was that everyone there relished the clash of opinions. And it was sometimes personal. It sometimes, you know, had had an edge. It wasn't fun and games every day. But that was a magazine, and they kept this quality that wanted, where people wanted to challenge their own opinions, wanted to have those opinions challenged, and they wanted to challenge their readers. And the New Republic did that really well. I mean, we had, it was, it netted out liberal, but there were reporters there who were left of liberal And we had Fred Barnes, who was a Reaganite, covering the White House. And people really kind of got along. And we had really, really interesting arguments. And, boy, it's hard to find a place where that goes on anymore. And that is why we founded The Gist. Well, thank you, Jacob. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Mike. On the show today, we will be talking to... A writer for The New Republic who wrote about international development and why we should stop trying to save the world. In my spiel, I'll talk about how to process discredited rape allegations. But first, the outgoing president of a South American country is a few things. Outgoing is one. Extremely poor is another. And kind of a conundrum. Can a United States politician be anything like the president of Uruguay?
The country of Uruguay has announced that it will accept six prisoners currently in detention in Guantanamo Bay. No country would take them until Uruguay's president, Jose Mujica, stepped up. Who is this Jose Mujica? Well, he's colorful. Now, when we say a world leader is colorful, we sometimes mean drunk, like Boris Yeltsin, possibly crazy, like Idi Amin, or in possession of an expansive zoo, like so many dictators. But Jose Mujica is colorful in a much more life-affirming way. The 79-year-old former political prisoner is ranked as the world's poorest leader, not worst, having the least money. His ambition post-presidency is to open a big orphanage. He's pro-gay rights and pro-legalized marijuana. So let's assess the outgoing, impecunious, humanitarian, Rastafarian, Jose Mujica. Joining me now is Michael Shifter, president of the Inter-American Dialogue and a professor of Latin American studies at Georgetown. Hello, Mr. Shifter. Hello. Thank you. So he's not really a Rastafarian, but let's start with the let's start with the legalization of uh, marijuana. What was his calculation? How much opposition did he run into? Well, he ran into a lot of opposition. Uh, this is not a popular view in Uruguay, but it's something that he was really committed to. Uruguay, uh, although a country that's relatively safe compared to the Latin American countries, has been experiencing uh, a rising uh, level of crime and violence, and drug use is part of that. And uh, he has a strong conviction that this is uh, absolutely something that should not be prohibited, and that he's somebody who wanted to pursue a, a new way of doing that. He's somebody who's committed to innovation. And uh, but it was has not been easy. There was a lot of opposition, a lot of resistance um, in public opinion as well as the Congress. And how is his commitment to gay rights? How did that? Where was that popular? I mean, it's a Latin American country. It's a Catholic country. Was that popular? And uh, how did that go? Well, again, that is that is something that he's been committed to. There has been, like in other parts of the world, in Latin America, uh, a move towards gay rights. We've seen that in Argentina. We've seen it in Mexico, uh, in, in Mexico City as well. The idea was to experiment on these kind of social cultural issues. Do Uruguayans like him? Absolutely. He's leaving uh, office with 65 percent approval uh, in Uruguay. I think he's got perhaps a little bit more of an appeal internationally since he's seen as somebody who's very uh, simpatico and very charming. But uh, he's somebody that does have enormous appeal in Uruguay. And again, leaving after four years with 65% approval is pretty good. Well, for all his uh, eccentricities, if he was a poor steward of the economy, he would be punished for that. So how did he do on that very important measure? What he did, uh, people give him credit for, he basically didn't uh, tinker with the economy. He let it go. It was going pretty well before he came in. His predecessor was Tabaré Vasquez, who was also his successor. Yeah. When he came in, there was some concern that he would really make some radical changes, but he didn't. He stood back. He basically had a very similar economic team as his predecessor. Things were going well. Why try to fix something that's working pretty well? It strikes me that he is authentic. I don't know. I never have met him. But he also strikes me as savvy, and he knows what his public persona is, and he knows how to play up that persona. No, absolutely. He's very sharp. He's very astute. He knows uh, this image that he's had of this, uh, you know, austere uh, uh, jokester, and he's and he's really known for his his one-liners. He's got good political antenna. He knows exactly the audience that he's talking to. He knows what's going to get people excited and have a good response and resonate with his audience. So he's very sharp, very astute, and uh, and yet has this uh, persona of this uh, former guerrilla uh, yeah. who was was in prison for years. Did the 14 years he spent as a political prisoner, did that burnish his credentials against those who would dismiss him as not sufficiently hardcore or more of a joke than legitimate? 
Absolutely. He certainly paid a big price for his political beliefs, his convictions. He was uh, was in prison during the military government. And so his credentials, I think, are uh, beyond questioned. And uh, I think that it's very, very hard for people to be very critical of Pepe Mujica for what he, he had to endure. What have your personal interactions with him have been like? I have just met him once. I was here with, with him at a, at a lunch when he was here in, in, in Washington, and uh, again, he was very, he was very charming, and uh, he didn't he he doesn't like to give long speeches, which is also something that uh, is very appealing to his audiences, uh, like some other Latin American leaders. Uh, he's he was very to the point and uh, just very plain spoken. Again, very positive and somebody who, who also you know he met with President Obama. He had some good things to say, President Obama, that President Obama should learn to speak Spanish and may want to stop smoking, gave him some uh, unsolicited advice there. So that's the kind of uh, person he is. He's very, very direct and very appealing. And finally, what can his example mean to the rest of the world? What insights can they glean from it? What maybe can another leader who maybe I'm just imagining a leader who feels constrained, maybe they could look at Mujik and say, okay, I'll go for it. Well, I think it really demonstrates that somebody who, who how they conduct their personal lives and how they live in, in austerity and they don't, you know, the view really breaks the cynicism of politics that that you you get into politics to get wealthy, uh, which has been sort of the, the pattern which has fueled a lot of the cynicism. Now people say, well, here's a guy who went into politics because he actually believes in something. And uh, he lives comfortably, uh, but he certainly has uh, shown no sign of any greed and uh, ego. And that's something that I think we need a little bit more of. You know, the Pope was able to do that because you don't really campaign for that job. I mean, you talk to other cardinals. In the United States, it's very hard for someone to do that. You have to have money and be comfortable around money. There's so much money involved in getting elected to any office in the U.S. Is it different in Uruguay? Is the role of money not that big in getting power in Uruguay? It's very different. It's becoming important in a lot of countries, but Uruguay is one of these very unusual countries that's quite quaint in some ways, and uh, which makes it, I think, a, a very attractive country. It still uh, hasn't been contaminated by... Uh, money in politics to the same extent as we see in other countries. I mean, even neighbors like Brazil, Argentina is much more prevalent. Uh, Uruguay is, has managed to preserve some very, very precious, important traditions. And uh, that's, I think you're right, I think, in the sense that if uh, if Uruguay had become like some of its neighbors, it would have been very difficult for someone like Mujica to have achieved the position that he did. Yeah. And then you're drawn to becoming like Eva Perón or right. people look at you know, the idea is that people will look up to you uh, if you act like royalty. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. It's a lot more comfortable to live like royalty, though, <laughs> than to live on a farm. Right. Yeah. right. Exactly. Exactly. I think it's a very, very positive example of, of what he's done. Uh, again, he was he was able to keep people in place who carried out policies, not somebody who's not a policy. He's not a policy wonk. You know, you can't talk to him all about all the details of policies, but he knew enough to keep the people in, to keep the country on a sound economic track, to keep the social agenda moving forward, and yet as sort of a symbol of somebody who was austere and he was committed to a socially progressive agenda. 
I mean, that's what we long for in America too, right? And like a uh, maybe a grandfatherly or a wise figure who's authentic and a bit removed, just right. that impossible to get it here. It's very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. One can dream, but I think it's, it's, it's probably unrealistic at this point. Michael Shifter is the president of the Inter-American Dialogue and a professor at Georgetown. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. With the holidays almost here, and I know you're saying, all right, they're not really almost here. They're almost, almost here. No, no, no. I really mean the holidays, the holy days, not just Christmas Day, people, not even Hanukkah, which starts on the 16th. Today, as I speak to you, it's the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. Right. So you're saying two things, maybe three. You're saying, oh, my goodness, the Virgin Mary immaculately conceived today. And the second thing you're thinking of, Oh my God, I blew it. Alternate side of the street parking was no longer in effect. And the third thing you're saying is, well, why do I want to go to the post office with all those Feast of the Immaculate Conception lines? And you'd be right about that. Stamps.com is the best way to do your mailing and shipping done right from your desk. It's not complicated. It's easy to use. Use your own computer, your own printer. You buy and print official U.S. postage stamps for any package or any letter. And there's a scale and the mailman will pick it up for you. So try Stamps.com today, today, on this day, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. Use the promo code THEGIST for the special offer. You get a no-risk trial get a hundred and ten dollar bonus offer it includes digital scale and fifty five dollars free postage go to stamps.com first thing to do click on the microphone at the top of the home page and type in the gist that's stamps.com enter the gist and then do all your feast of the immaculate conception holiday shopping and mailing from home In a recent essay in The New Republic, Michael Hobbs, a veteran of trying to save the world, wrote, Stop trying to save the world. Big ideas are destroying international development. Michael Hobbs joins me now. Hello, Michael. Hello. So the article grabs us with great anecdotes of programs that were heralded. Starts off by talking about this merry-go-round hooked up to a water pump and the kids would Mm. use the pump. So anecdotes are one thing, and you acknowledge the limit of anecdotes, but where do you go beyond the anecdotes of programs that don't work? Why is this a more global argument that we should, quote, stop trying to save the world? Well, I think in the last 10 years, you've kind of seen the TED Talkization of international aid, that oftentimes it's who can tell the best story is the person who gets the most funding. And I think the way that donors work and the way that sort of the Kickstarter nature of donations work is that it's very easy for one story to make it really far and for one idea to get a huge amount of funding overnight. And I think it's easy for these kind of one big idea to be seen as the end-all, be-all of development, and this is going to save the world. I think the best example of this is probably microcredit, Mm -hmm. where... All of us got really excited about microcredit 10 years ago, and it's kind of become this sort of discredited thing, not because microcredit doesn't work, but just because it doesn't work everywhere and it doesn't work for everyone. This kind of, we must save the world with one big idea, this is going to change everything, I think that makes it too easy or it allows us to tell ourselves a story that we're not going to be able to follow through on. Do you think that the people who run these foundations 
actually believe their press releases. Maybe not Bill and Melinda, but the people actually in the field implementing the ideas, people you've come across. No, you got to promise big things and world-changing things to donors. Do they really believe that or do they believe, look, if we can help these 60 kids in a village and then 60 kids in the next village, I'm happy with that. I think as a person, I struggle with this because sometimes you want to be working for an organization that's having impacts that you can see. So I work for sort of think tanky kinds of organizations. We work on institution building and, you know, access to justice reform. And I mean, these are kind of generational issues that we're trying to work on. And you can't measure impacts with things like randomized control trials. We'll never be able to walk away from a project and say, I saved the world today. And part of me does actually want to go and work on a project that gives goats to poor people or, that, <laughs> you know, delivers water to villages that don't have water or something like that. As a person, I completely understand that. But I think as a system, I think we need to be much more skeptical of what works and what we tell ourselves. I mean, I'm one of the guys that writes those press releases. Yeah. And sometimes I believe that stuff and I'm... I feel pressure from my donors to expand my expectations for the funding to come through. When you were writing the press release, did you believe it then? Or did you know, well, okay, I guess I got to promise big and hope it comes true. I definitely thought big. I, I mean, what's interesting is oftentimes in the conversations with your donors, they will ask you to think bigger. Like, have you been listening to Alex Bloomberg's podcast, Startup? Alex Bloomberg, yeah. Like, it's the same kind of thing where he goes to this venture capital guy. He says, oh, I want to start some podcasts. And the venture capital guy goes, actually, why don't you make a whole ecosystem of podcasts? Why don't you create this entire network of podcasts and a new way of thinking about podcasts? Yeah. And he goes, yeah, let's do it. And he gets all this money. And it's the same kind of thing when you go to donors. You're like, I have this really humble project I want to work on with this one institution in this one place on this one thing. And they go, why don't you work on all institutions? Why don't you go to all of these regions? <laughs> and then instead of giving you you know, 200,000 euros or something that's kind of reasonable and humble, why don't we give you 2 million euros to do all of this? And so what's interesting about that is that it turns you from a sort of dreamer into this project manager where all of a sudden you have this huge scale of expectations and like this infrastructure that you have to deliver on. So instead of actually spending time in the villages that you're actually supposed to be helping, you're spending time writing terms of reference for consultants and you're spending time doing more fundraising to meet all these promises that you've made because your donor wants you to get co-funding. And of course you're going to fail. Like You don't know how to do that. You've never been trained for that because training you would count as overhead spending. <laughs> I've seen this happen to so many of my friends kind of in the quote unquote industry that all of a sudden they're expected to know how to run an organization because their bosses and their donors have these huge expectations for them. And most of us are like these academic tree hugging liberals who've never thought that much about what it actually takes to fill in Excel spreadsheets and run a budget and all this other kind of stuff. And I think a lot of it like comes down to these boring things that we basically, we need to know how to do, but we don't know how to do. We don't have the systems in place to get to the size that we need to be to solve these problems. I love your startup metaphor, but I would just say two things. One, Alex didn't say, oh yeah, let's create a new ecosystem. Alex said, huh, it's a great idea, but that's not what I want to do. But the other thing, mm. the more salient thing is that the guy who proposed it 
can point to actual examples where that works, where instead of, hey, let's invent a TV show, it's like, let's invent YouTube. But I don't know, and I think you're saying that it's unclear if that idea ever really does work in international development. There is no YouTube of international development. Yeah, it's really difficult to be honest about your failures. And, you know, so many business ideas came from doing one thing and then failing, tweaking, failing, tweaking. Whereas oftentimes in international development, when the, when the funding comes on one or three or five year cycles, that's basically enough time to try something. And then if you fail, that's it. So if you fail, it's not that you can tweak and reiterate. It's that you fail and then you write up the report to the donor as if you haven't failed. And then nobody really learns from anything, and whatever you've done has gone off into the ether. Right. So maybe you personally, the individual learns, quietly learns, but yes, yeah. it can't. Hey, that's not scalable. Failure yeah. is not scalable in international development. Yeah. And you're not allowed to have this open conversation with your donor of like, well, you know, we did actually have impacts, but those impacts aren't on the log frame that you gave us. They're not on the indicator set that you gave us. Because, of course, all the money that you get is based on these indicators. You know, you have to give five trainings. You have to make five field visits, whatever. And all your donor really cares about is, did you make the five field visits? Did you give me receipts for the hotel you stayed at? And maybe you should have only made two field visits because there was nobody to meet with on the third, fourth, and fifth. Yeah. But your donor's not actually all that interested in hearing that. They're interested in hearing, did you meet the indicators? And you're not actually able to be honest about what worked and what didn't because they just want you to feed into whatever annual report they're going to put out so that they can say, oh, we sent somebody to the field five times. Well, it is true what they say. If you give a man a fish, he has fish for a day. But if you give a man a goat, then you're part of a bigger solution. I don't know if they say that, but I think they might say that. That sounds about right. <laughs> Michael Hobbs is the author of Stop Trying to Save the World. Big ideas are destroying international development. He wrote that in The New Republic. He's a veteran of NGOs. Thank you, Michael. Thanks. And now the spiel, a consolation for campus victims. What I wanted to talk about today was the understandable, but I think inaccurate perception of how we will process the retraction of a high-profile rape story. And you can't spell unraveled without UVA. That, unraveled, is the state of affairs after Rolling Stone retracted its story about a rape on campus. Rolling Stone also changed the wording of their retraction to include less blame but have announced no plans to fully re-report the story, so they're still full of lame. But the thing we keep hearing in the wake of this retraction is something like this from the Huffington Post. Rolling Stone's missteps will set rape dialogue back years, advocates worry. Or these dueling headlines. Why no one ever seems to believe rape victims. That's a Think Progress headline. CNN said, should we always believe the victim? So there you have it. That's the problem with victims. We should always believe them, and we should never believe them. Look, I understand the concern about the next victim not being believed. I think it's a sincere concern. I just think it's misplaced. Yes, if there were a spade of stories, story after story after story about high-profile allegations being misproved or unproved, then that would be a problem. And something like that happened after the McMartin preschool case and after a few other high-profile cases of false memories, we began to question that so-called phenomenon. It turns out it was hugely problematic. But there won't be a massive walk back of story after story about rape allegations because, in fact, false stories are not legion. We're not experiencing a misplaced mass hysteria over phony stories like we were with 
Satan worship, say, or stranger kidnappings, things that happened here and there, but were not the nationwide scourge that they had been portrayed as. But the big thing is this. If we're worried about a high-profile misreported story undoing people's belief in an actual underlying phenomenon, we shouldn't. People's minds just don't work like that. Ideas take root and shape over time, and they're not undone by one false positive. In fact, counter-evidence is frustrating, not because we're too eager to take it to heart, but because we disregard it too easily. People who study entrenched political ideas know this. Ads that rebut a candidate's claims don't really work as well as ads that deal with emotions involved. In fact, rebuttals and refutations usually go nowhere. Evidence is one of the least effective mind changers out there. And we wring our hands over this when the evidence is something like, there are no such things as death panels, because people won't be shaken from their belief that there are such things as death panels. But we also wring our hands exactly because we're worried that people will be easily shaken from their beliefs when it comes to a story like what we're seeing in UVA. In fact, and I'm not saying that this story was a hoax, this is just a story that Rolling Stone can't swear is true, but the reason that hoaxes or lies or repertorial inventions do get embedded in the imagination is that on some level, people think that they are true. Stephen Glass didn't write about stuff that you never thought could ever happen. He wrote exaggerated examples of archetypes that we delighted in because we figured they did happen. After the UVA story, so many outlets Slate included, wrote a version of the story that said, what's so shocking about the UVA story is that it's not shocking at all. Well, that's wrong. This rape didn't happen, or at least there's no solid evidence that it did. But my point is, I don't think that this will redound to disbelieving other victims, except by people with their own biases, with their own axes to grind, who never believed that campus rape was a big problem in the first place. And that's it for the show. Upon leaving office, it is just producer Andrea Salenzi's goal to open an orphanage for dogs. A dog-finage. This idea is legs. Like Jose Mojica's dog. Three-legged, in fact. Joel Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcasts, escaped Punta Carreta's prison by digging a tunnel from inside the prison walls that opened up in the living room of a nearby home. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, was the owner of that home. You can subscribe on iTunes or give us a listen at Stitcher. Get our daily email at slate.com slash gist email. We are on Yo. We are on facebook.com slash slate gist. Email the gist at slate.com. I am a lot like the sun on the Uruguayan flag. I'm smiling, unlike my Argentinian cousin. And I usually have 16 or so points, half straightforward, half undulating wildly. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, host of Slate Sports Podcast, Hang Up and Listen. On this week's episode, we interview the now former ombudsman for ESPN, Robert Lipsight, and ask him about his journeys inside the ESPN empire. To subscribe to Hang Up and Listen, go to iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts.